Hi, this is Elliot Fishman, and welcome to part two of our discussion on what's happening with contrast. Again, trying to be very practical, trying to answer many of the questions that we're getting on Ask the Fish. And uh, you can see that uh, literally in the last week, there have been at least 10 questions about oral contrast material that I've answered online, and hopefully I've answered in this talk as well. And we started before talking about risk factors and what patients were at risk. We commented about some of the things uh, we need to think about. And then I ended the last talk in terms of saying that risk assessment becomes critical. And, you know, we're all so busy. You're doing five, eight patients an hour. How do you do risk assessment in a very simple way? You don't have an hour to spend doing physicals and histories. So how do we do things? Well, we need to basically kind of try to divide patients up. And there have been many ways. Some people talk about low risk, moderate risk, and high risk. And they look at that based on the patient's GFR. The GFR below 30 is high risk, and roughly 30 to 60 is moderate risk, and above 60 would be low risk. But a low risk patient is typically with somebody with normal renal function. And in those patients, uh, you know, we always are careful, making sure we're doing the right study, making sure we're doing everything well. Patients should be hydrated, selecting the right contrast agent. But let's focus more on the high-risk patient. So the high-risk patient, the GFR, typically we're going to be speaking about a GFR, uh, depending moderate risk under 60, high risk under 30. And typically what we're looking at are risk factors, patients who are older, patients who are diabetic, Patients have had contrast in previous, uh, you know, 72 hours. And again, that will be important. How much contrast? If you got 50 cc's or 80 cc's, probably not that critical. But if you had an angiogram and you had 300 cc's, it surely would be critical. Patients who are in failure, patients who have cirrhosis, nephrotic syndrome, peripheral vascular disease, patients on diuretics, patients on nephrotoxic medications like non-steroidal inflammatory disease, Patients who are hypertensive, patients who are hyperuricemia or hypercholesterolemia, patients with myeloma, patients who have sickle cell disease, those are all potentially higher risk patients. Now, it doesn't mean we don't give these patients contrast, but it means the patient could be at a higher risk. So we need to basically be more careful. Now, in terms of the ACR, there are no real guidelines yet present, but there are guidelines in place from the... Uh, Society of Euroradiology, the European Society of Euroradiology, that are pretty good and I think at least can probably help us uh, kind of, again, stratify risk. And I'll go through them and I have no doubt that once uh, the uh, our U.S. organizations come up with risk stratification, it's probably going to be very similar. So here's things they, co they consider. They said at the time of referral for a contrast study, identify patients with a probable uh, abnormal serum creatinine levels. And you could do that by asking the history of renal disease or surgery or proteinuria, diabetes, hypertension, gout, patients with recent nephrotoxic drugs. Now, again, patients don't always know all that information. And so the key things they typically know are renal disease and diabetes. Um, ideally, of course, they say that that information should be provided with the imaging request, but we know that's just not possible in most cases. Uh, it's from the physician's office. The requests come from nurses, from PAs. Many patients are added on the last second. So ideally, you'd like to have a serum creatinine level not more than six months old. Some people have said three months, but they say six months, as long as nothing um, has changed in that interval. And then you could feel comfortable. So for non-emergency uh, studies, you know, look for the positive answers to one of the questions above. Know the patient's serum creatinine level. Is it elevated? 
and uh, know how the procedure will be performed, intraarterial or intravenous. Maybe less issue, potentially intraarterial, at least according to some articles. And if you're not certain, if you don't have the creatinine levels, well then get a creatinine level. And you know, th that is an issue. Uh, how do you do that? So we ask when patients are scheduled for their creatinine levels. In patients, obviously, it's easy. You look on the electronic patient record. Uh, but our patients often don't have that information available. And for us, like many of you, when you have patients added on from, uh, from the clinics, their patients from far away, you don't have those numbers. So what can you do? You can do lab testing locally. And every institution has a way of getting creatinines drawn. The problem is it can take two to four hours to get results. And for a study that takes 10 seconds, that can be very problematic in a very busy day. And so more and more people are looking at point-of-care testing. We're evaluating that now ourselves. Point-of-care testing is probably the way things are going to go. A lot's been driven by the issues with MR contrast agents. But the point is you do a skin prick, drop a blood, get the creatinine level, and move on. So if that works well, that's going to be the ideal way of doing it. And if it works well, I have no doubt that you probably will be getting creatinine levels on everyone that you don't have, uh, even the uh, non-high-risk patients, if it's that simple. In terms of emergency situations, obviously, you've got to do what's right for the patient. Do the study. If, if not doing the study can harm the patient, trauma, short of breath, chest pain, worrying about cardiac disease, worrying about pulmonary embolism, just do the patient. Now, if you have all the time in the world, you can stop some of the drugs, you can do hydration, you could do sodium bicarb. Again, a critical thing, of course, is contrast agent. So go with an isosmolar agent. We use Visipec. If in doubt, use Visipec 320. If you're not certain, use Visipec 320. If the patient has risk factors, use Visipec 320. I think we got a theme here. Anyway, so if you look at some of the preventing nephropathy thought processes, Screening is critical. Make sure you have some questionnaire, whether the tech asks the questions, the nurse asks the questions, or the doc asks the questions. Make sure it's filled out, and then do the stratification. Now, another thing in terms of stratification in low risk and high risk, we want to make sure patients are hydrated. Now, remember the old days, we would always make the point about uh, having patients NPO after midnight for CT or IVP. Well, that was crazy. Uh, we know better now, of course. You want to hydrate. Drink lots of fluids. Uh, we have the patients not eat for three hours, but drinking fluids is mandatory. We also typically, for abdominal CT, give patients 1,000 cc's of, of uh, water. So again, hydrate before, hydrate after. And of course, the other comments we made, make sure CT is the right study. Sometimes if patients have bad renal function, other studies may suffice, ultrasound or MR, for example. Now, in terms of contrast agents, I made mentioned about using Visipec and let me just show you the reasons why we say that. Here's a series of charts of different articles that have been published and you can see that the isoosmolar agent always wins. So iodixanol and the nephric study which is the key New England Journal of Medicine study looking at high-risk diabetic patients, the percent difference is significant. So the patients who took iodixanol, the isoosmolar agent better known as Visipec, had a far lower incidence of SIN, 26% for the non-isoosmolar versus 3.1% for the isoosmolar agent. So again, agent selection indeed is very critical. I mentioned about uh, you know nephrotoxic medications. When possible, discontinue them. That often is not the case, or you just can't do it. 
Again, doses, the good news about 64 slide CT is we use lower volumes. There is no magic volume. You can't say under 50 or under 70, there's no issue, but the lower the volume, and typically under 140, surely under 100, there's far less issues. So again, um, if we can lower the volumes, you can do this many ways. Again, faster injections, better timing, which 16 and 64 provide. You could do a saline push. Often that makes better use of the contrast. So again, limiting the contrast volume is a very, very helpful thing. Now, in terms of uh, how do you also pre-treat patients? So one of the big things now has been written about, and there are two more recent articles that also show it to be well, is sodium bicarb. And you can see sodium bicarb uh, uh, can be done typically six hours pre and 12 to 24 hours post procedure. Um, the results have been very good. The first article in JAMA by Merton showed incredible results. Almost no one had any issues with sin. And so the thought might be use sodium bicarb and use Visipake, and maybe that'll be like an added protection. There are two more articles published in 2007 that have very similar results to this Merton article. There was some criticism or at least question about the Merton article, only in the sense of single institution, limited number of patients, and in fact the results were so good the study was terminated in midstream. But two more articles show this to be the case. So. Uh, it would seem right now the prudent thing to do is patients who have elevated renal uh, lab values, treat them with bicarb with uh, normal saline, and that should be uh, a very good way with Visipake of really optimizing safety for these patients. Now, in terms of guidelines, the American College of Cardiology, American Heart Association, publishes guidelines that cardiologists follow very carefully, and this was a recently published guideline looking in managements of some of their high-risk patients and what they mentioned there and not so much mentioned that what they recommended in that patient with chronic renal disease undergoing angiography isoosmolar agents are indicated on our preferred with a level evidence of A. So that's their strongest level of evidence and here's basically a straightforward no messing around uh, no uh, uh, uncertain uh, recommendation. So again, that adds credence to the idea about using isoosmolar agents like Visipake. And a number of societies have also recommended that for high-risk patients. So again, the trend is very clear, and I think uh, you can hear arguments other ways, but those arguments seem to be falling on deaf ears because you have to go with the science and you have to go with the literature. Uh, finally, I guess I could summarize we are going to see patients who are at risk that we're going to do CTs on. We need to do them. CT has become such an important part of medicine. Cardiac patients, pulmonary embolism studies, uh, renal studies, mesenteric ischemia studies. We're seeing sicker and sicker patients. We're seeing patients who are older, people are living longer, so they become higher risk patients just by being older. Uh, again, we're always going to see this, and that's the trend in the future. Patients are getting older, sicker, a lot of possibilities, and CT is becoming more important. So again, the things we need to do is figure out how to do things best. Avoid nephrotoxic drugs when possible. Key thing is hydration. Uh, sodium bicarb looks like it's a winner to help us. N-acetylcysteine, I didn't discuss that, but that was one of the things people have spoken about. But large meta-analysis of the data shows that it really is not worthwhile. Minimize contrast volumes, but don't minimize them to the point of getting a bad study. You need to get a good study and get the answer. Okay, that's critical. Get the answer that helps treat the patient. Uh, so, but minimize, don't just inject 
the same volumes for everybody. And again, the choice of contrast agent, again, we use Omnipeg or Visipeg. High-risk patients, we use Visipeg. Um, and again, the literature supports that very nicely. So with that, hopefully I could end here. But before I end, let me just tell you one late-breaking thing that I got in my email today. And this came from GE, and so I'll just tell you from Craig Small, who's the person responsible at GE for Omnipeg, and he wanted me to tell everyone, because this is a question that's come up on CTSS, and this is on the package inserts for Omnipeg. Now, you remember people have asked me about Omnipeg, how long can you keep it in the warmer, and typically the answer is 24 hours. Well, here's what Craig said. We recently received FDA approval to store Omnipeg in a contrast warmer at 37 degrees for up to one month. Um, and so this will make life very, very easy for everybody. No longer is it one day, it's now one month. So hopefully that'll help you uh, not shifting around the contrast in your warmer. And that ruling is for Omnipeg. With that, have a great day.